Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. A number of years ago, I traveled by car to speak at a retreat um, in Michigan. And as with almost every retreat center I've ever been to, um, this one was in the backwoods in the middle of literally nowhere. And so, you know, I don't know if, if you know about this, but driving to a retreat center is tricky, especially if you do it at night, because you have no idea where you are, and you really are in the sticks. Well, this was in the years before GPS, and or at least before GPS had come to my life. And uh, so it was even before, like, Google Maps was a big deal. We were using MapQuest on and off, but somebody had actually emailed me the driving directions. And so I was dependent on this person who maybe had been to this place once before in their life. So I'm following the directions. And everything was great until I got to this one country road. And I looked at the directions. I looked at the sign and it said this. Turn right going on 105 north. Something like that. What I looked up at at the sign was the right turn would take me to 105 south. And so I was in a dilemma. Which one is right? Is the right turn correct or is the direction correct? Do I go north or do I go right? And I was so confused. And, I, and you can't sit there forever. I mean, cars are pulling up behind me and honking. And so I had to make a choice. And so that's what I did. I just chose one and I turned right. Figuring most people don't pay attention to the road signs, but they remember whether they took a right turn or a left turn. So I just turned right. Now, it was going to take me a few miles down this road. And so about 10 minutes in, that's when the worry and the doubt began to set in. Because what I realized is I've been driving for 10 minutes and every minute and every mile that I kept driving on this direction could either be taking me closer to where I needed to go or in totally the opposite direction of where I needed to be. That was a moment of real self-doubt and, and it, it captured me. I, finally, luckily, just as I was getting ready to turn around and, and, and double back, I saw a sign for the retreat center and I said, Thank you, Lord. I made the right choice back there. Now, I think that feeling, that emotion that I had, really describes well what a midlife crisis feels like. Are you guys familiar with this concept of a midlife crisis? I, I think it's a, uh, a very, very common idea in American life. And it's that emotional feeling of wondering, did I really make all the right turns, especially the really important ones, somewhere backstream of where I am today? This morning's message is called Jacob's Twilight Years. Now, we're, we're traveling through the Bible looking at a hundred different things that are important to know. We're still in, in March, we're still in Genesis, so we're kind of zooming ahead a little more quickly. We go straight from Abraham's life to the end of Jacob's life. But this is a very important passage and an important truth for us to see. What we read in Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 15, is God's closing out Jacob's real journey in life. And what we see are some important movements, things that are happening at the close of Jacob's life that help us navigate our own lives. Because sometimes it's really helpful to see the end before you get there. It helps you to do some course correction along the way. You, you know, if you look at the idea of the midlife crisis, I looked it up on Wikipedia. Here's how the Wikipedia describes midlife crisis. A period of dramatic self-doubt that is felt by some individuals in the middle years of life. Listen as a result of sensing the passing of youth and the imminence of old age. Now, I don't think that's strong enough. For a lot of people, midlife crisis feels like an all-out panic attack. They wake up sweating and panting in the middle of the night, feeling like, 
What is going on with my life? What have I done? And I love the words dramatic self-doubt because that's exactly what I felt on that road back in Michigan. It's what we feel somewhere in midlife when you really do wonder at those big forks in the road back then, did I make the right turns? I mean, some people feel that about their choice of a, a mate in marriage. Some people feel like that about the choice to have a fourth child. And some people feel that way about career choices. And this is all hypothetical, right? I mean, you wonder, like, did I make all the right moves? There are moments of great certainty and security and happiness. And then there are moments when you wonder and you're, you're plagued by the what-ifs and what could-have-beens, right? This crisis of doubt is because at some point you can't sit still forever. You need to make a choice. And once you do, you make that choice to the exclusion of all the other choices you could have made. So by definition, choosing something produces second guessing. It, it produces this feeling of, I wonder what could have been had I just taken a slightly different turn. You know, most people when they hit this midlife crisis, um, they do funny things, especially men. Some guys, they buy a new toy, sometimes a two-wheel variety. I went through a little bit of this myself. Um, some guys buy a convertible. They, they need to go fast. I'm not sure what that's all about, except that I think you're trying to create the sense of movement because you feel like your life has come to a screeching halt. Uh, other guys get, get into this adrenaline thing. They don't have the guts to go diving by themselves, so they strap themselves onto an instructor. They just need to do something daring and crazy, climb a mountain, go skydiving, go bungee jumping. Other guys, they trade in their old wife for a new, fresh, younger one. This is our... Senator and former presidential candidate Fred Thompson and his trophy wife, Jerry. His words, not mine. When a journalist asked him, what's your greatest possession? He jokingly said, my trophy wife and fired up a storm of controversy. Um, but she is younger than his oldest child. And that's what happens when you hit midlife and everyone asks you, oh, you're out to lunch with your father. And he says, no, that's my husband. Now, I'm not here to throw stones at another person's personal life. The point is something strange takes place in the heart when you get to the middle of your life. You're cresting that hill. You sense your own mortality. And you start to wonder, did I do it all right? Has my life amounted to anything? Am I really here? Am I alive? And if you don't have an answer to that question, you will try to create a sense of life by changing your scenery by changing your possessions, by just injecting adrenaline into the picture, just so you feel something, anything. And this idea of midlife crises has become such a cultural cliche, it's almost become mandatory. I can't tell you how often people ask me, Dave, you're 42, have you hit your midlife crisis yet? I'm actually 41, but I feel 42 already. Have you hit it yet? And you know, my honest answer is, aside from a momentary burst of conflict about having a motorcycle, I don't think I have. And, and the truth is, I don't think I will. I don't think I'm going to hit a midlife crisis. I'm at midlife, but I don't feel the panic. Nor do I think it's mandatory or necessary as a rite of passage. I think a midlife crisis is your soul's way of telling you 
that you lived without purpose all the way till this point, and finally, as you're cresting the hill, you're asking all the important questions when it's already a little bit late to be asking them. I think that's what ultimately a midlife crisis is about, is you are running 100 miles an hour in any chosen direction without consulting the map and wondering, is this really where I ought to aim my life? And when it's half spent, you start asking those serious questions in the second act. And for a lot of people, the reason it creates panic is because you're already done making your decisions in some ways. That's why it's so helpful to see the beginning or to see the end before you get there. And that's why I love this idea of looking ahead at another person's life in the twilight years to see what was God doing when he was closing the books on this significant life. And as we see him doing that, we know this. What happened at the end of Jacob's life are, are movements that are going to likely happen in your life and my life. And so I want to peek ahead and give you this, these simple principles that could help you avoid your own midlife crisis. Does that sound interesting to you? Especially if you're nearing midlife, you better pay attention so you don't come to me and spend hours getting counseled for what God is already wanting to tell you this morning. He wants you to avoid that crisis when you hit there. So let's look at some of the movements that happen in the closing acts of Jacob's life. The first movement I see is that Jacob, interestingly, is moving from a partial commitment to a full commitment to God. I want you to look at this, this, these verses here. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. And the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. You know, Jacob is 120 years old when we meet him in this chapter. And he's only going to live another 27 years. So he's a little bit beyond midlife. He's now in the twilight of his life. And God is sending him on what would be the second to last great relocation or journey of his earthly, earthly life. And so that's what's going on here. And what's clear from the setting is that Jacob really had this relationship with God where while God was pretty important to him most of his life, God had not really become all important to him. This is something that ought to speak to a lot of us. You know, there's no question in my mind that if you press the people in Jacob's camp, his family and extended family, and you asked him, who is your God? Who do you follow and worship? Every one of them would have said, well, obviously the God of Jacob. The God who has the God of our father Isaac, the God of our grandfather Abraham, this is who we follow. There is no dispute that in the camp of Jacob, the one true living God was the main deity, the one who led and gave comfort and security. But it's also clear that they had other little things they picked up along the way. Little idols that gave them a sense of familiarity and confidence, a little bit of security, things that were tangible because so often this God dealt only with their leaders. There would be mysterious face-to-face -face meetings in a tent where smoke and thunderous sound and, and light would ooze out of the bottom of the tent. But this was something going on between the main guy, right? The main guy and God. 
And they, they, she would come back and report to them, God said this, God told me this. But for most of the people, God was pretty invisible to them. They needed something they could hold, something that was right here, immediate. And so that's what they clung to, to be their security blanket. I don't know if your kids grew up with a wooby, you know, some kind of object. Uh, Elijah still has one. Uh, None of my other kids seem to have gotten that attached to one physical object. But it's this thing you hang on to, and every time you touch it, rub it to your skin, it makes you feel safe again because it's so familiar and it's so truly tangible. Most woobies are soft. No kid has like a wooby cactus that he, you know, like they're usually soft, soothing, comforting things, right? That you can rub on yourself. And I think we have filled our lives just like Jacob's household with that. What's clear is that God is important, but he's not yet all important. As Jacob nears the final chapter of his life, there is a radical shift where he finally says, you know what, I've been doing this thing all my life, straddling the fence. I've been doing this thing where God is very important, but He's not everything. And I'm done with that. My life no longer has room for hedging bets, for trying to spread out the odds, for finding other sources of comfort. This God who answers me in my day of distress and has been with me wherever I have gone deserves all of me. And he began to sense that that's what God had been asking for all along. God never enters our lives to become first among many objects of worship. God enters our lives to become the exclusive and only and primary source of all worship. And it doesn't get exciting until that actually happens in our lives. You can be a Sunday Christian, you can be one of the most faithful attenders of this meeting every week during these hours and still find that you're left empty when you think about God. He is a person who has a place in your life of prominence but not of centrality. He is one of the moons orbiting your planet. He's not the sun around which you entirely orbit. You know, I think there's a reason that we love Texas Hold'em as a culture. I really like the game. You know, I don't play it very much because uh, I can't afford to and I don't want to somehow legitimize gambling as a culture in our church. But when I do play Texas Hold'em, It's not so much the card game itself or or the smoky cigars or all that. You know what I think really gets me and probably most people about Texas Hold'em is the concept of all in. I think that's the part that makes the game exciting. You know, I used to play poker all the time in college with my friends. And when we didn't have money, we'd play with hair, you know. I raise you six, you know, just you had to play with something and you had to, to raise the stakes. And we could dicker away an entire day with penny antes and little pots and things like that. And the, the fortunes would rise and fall, but pretty much what made it kind of fun was you're still in the game six hours later. But the thrill of Texas Hold'em is that with every hand, you could literally be out of the game watching from the sidelines the very next minute. You let it all ride on one hand. You get, you get dealt these cards and you go, well, compared to what I think is out there, I really feel confident that I could let everything ride on this one hand. I think there's something about that that calls out to a primal understanding in each of us that life doesn't really begin until you're all in. You can't find true satisfaction in anything that you dabble in halfway. 
You know, I see people come to the pool at summer and just keep their feet dipped in the water. And this is all they do the whole time. And I just think, what a complete waste of time. Just sit at the edge of the pool, dipping your toes into a pool. That's not why God invented pools. If that were the case, you could bring a, a, a Tupperware, fill it with cold water, stick your foot in, don't even come out to the pool. It's meant for your whole body. Until you're all in, most things in life make no sense to you. They don't, you don't draw from them the kind of satisfaction that those who are immersed in it keep testifying about. And you see people like me or others who are still at this Christian thing, chanting about it and raving about it, and you wonder, what is the big deal? Why are you so agitated about this? Why are you always talking about Jesus? Well, if you're not fully immersed, you'll never really understand why it is so exciting. Because so far, it costs you very little. You're dabbling in what was meant to engage everything. You're sliding in five or six chips on, on a royal flush. You're wasting your time. And you're wasting away your life. And when you turn the corner of midlife, that realization will dawn on you like a, a pile of bricks falling from the sky. And you suddenly go, oh my goodness. Everything in my life has been playing it safe, hedging my bets, going halfway in and dipping my toes into the pool. So far I look at it, I haven't been fully invested in anything. I've made babies, but I haven't raised human beings. I've given spanks, but I haven't formed a heart in this child yet. I've been part of a church, but if I disappear tomorrow, the only thing they'd miss is my offering check. I haven't made a mark in that place. There's nothing I hold up that would collapse if I left. I've walked with Jesus for years, but always on my terms. Never in this way that if he's not real, if he's just something that Pastor Dave made up, I am hosed because I've given all my chips to that hand. And what, Abe, what, what, what Jacob is doing is he's finally waking to the fact that this God invites him to a full commitment an all-in proposition. And in his quietly, he realizes he doesn't have an appetite for anything less than that. Nothing else holds any meaning for an older person. It's too bad that sometimes the awakening happens when the choices have all been cast and all you can do is be filled with regrets about the choices you didn't make, the hands you didn't play better. Have you ever had a great hand in poker and you didn't go all in and then five hours later... You go out on this loser hand, and you go, oh, if only I had, I'd be sitting on top of the world right now. You don't want to end your life on those terms. And I'm going to tell you whether it's parenting, or marriage, or citizenship, or faith, whether it's a hobby, or a career, anything you put your hand to, it doesn't get meaningful or interesting until you're all in. And I see chief among those things is the relationship you're called into with the one true living God. Let me tell you about another movement I see in Jacob's twilight years. It's a movement from the things of God to God himself. A movement from the things of God to God himself. Look at these verses. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself 
to him when he fled from his brother. The reason I say that Jacob here is moving in his journey away from being fascinated with the things of God to God himself is this subtle name change that's mentioned. Where he, where he starts with a place called Bethel and he renames it El Bethel in the twilight years of his life. You know, Bethel was a very important place for Jacob. It's the place that he'd run to initially after he'd stolen his older brother's birthright and he's running for his life because his brother was pretty ticked off about that. And so he runs to Bethel and he finds safety there. It's the place he'd run to to find a wife. It's the place he'd run to where he had first had God reveal himself to him. It's the place where you'd have that amazing dream, Jacob's dream. Remember that? Uh, of, uh, of This is a great painting from the 1600s of Jacob's dream where angels are descending and, and are ascending on this ladder coming from heaven. This was something opened up to Jacob where he saw the glory of God revealed and expressed in his younger years. And so this place meant a great deal to Jacob. Do you guys have a place like that? Maybe it's a childhood hometown or some physical place. Maybe it's a university campus where you met your, your mate. A place that holds great, deep significance for you. A physical place. I imagine for some of you, if you go back to that city, the minute you walk across the, the, the city line, you will feel something different. It's like coming home. That's what Bethel was to Jacob. And so he goes there, and, and, and he's happy to return to Bethel because it holds such meaning for him. But when you look back at the first time he was at Bethel and he had this dream, what's interesting is he interprets everything that happens through a young man's heart. Look at the, the exclamation from Jacob the first time he's in Bethel, and he has that amazing dream. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. I've emphasized those things because this happens so often when we're younger. I don't know why, it's, it's a little ironic, that some of the most significant events of our lives happen to us when we're too young to understand their true significance. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's why we all, all need therapy and counseling in, in our later years. Because you're trying to understand, I was too young and too blind to know the true weight of what was happening to me. Jacob has this amazing revelation of God, and all that's going on is goosebumps have risen on the back of his neck, and he's fascinated by the events and the spectacle of what happened. And he decides, this is a very special place. There's very little mention of the God who revealed himself, but about the event and the miracle and the thing he'd witnessed. That is so typical of young people. Is that we are fascinated by the spectacle so that it eclipses us from seeing the real weight of what's going on or the person who's behind it. We're fascinated by the cool things happening to us. That's why old people don't use the word cool, but young people do. Young people are always going, cool. You know, when... Uh, when we take our kids to a new place and they see something they've never seen before, they see like the conveyor belts like, that are like horizontal escalators at the airport. And like, what do you do? You stand out, it just moves you. And they go, cool, cool. This is what it means to be young, is to be filled with wonder at all the new discovery. So it's just the, the novelty of everything is raining down on you and you haven't had the, the, the tools by which you can process what's really going on. What am I seeing? What is happening to me? So we live fast and with eyes wide open, but we fail to be hit by the full weight of life that is being revealed to us. Remember when Jesus sent out his disciples and 
he was going to give them incredible authority and power over the spiritual realm. But listen to the words he gives them in Luke 10. It's not up on the slide, but listen. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And remember, later when they returned, they're like, Dude, the demons were fleeing at our command. But listen to what he says. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? It's a very subtle thing, but he's saying, look, when you're young and everything's new, you're going to be like, cool, cool, I can't, cool. I remember one time I prayed for someone to be healed and supernaturally they were healed of something that the doctors couldn't heal. And I remember walking away, telling the story to everyone who listened, going, I think I have the claw of healing. Cool. I can't believe what I just saw, what I just experienced. And all the while, God gets no real mention. I missed the complete significance of what had happened. I was fascinated with the things of God, and I had missed out on God Himself. I'm convinced that this marks so much of the religion and the faith journey of the young. Is that we're so enthralled by the things of God. Look at all the ministries we choose to embrace. We love things where there's movement and action and travel and excitement. But we hate prayer meetings. We try to call people to prayer in the church. Five people show up and go, Hey, good to see you again. We're becoming kind of a family. Because sitting still in God's presence, which is one of the richest gifts given to the human race, we miss it because it's not enough of the things of God. You know, after all of this amazing spectacle, you know how I know that, that Jacob had missed the point? Listen to this vow that he makes in the very next verses. If God will be with me and protect me on this journey and give me food and clothing, and if he will bring me back safely to my father, then I will make the Lord my God. This memorial pillar will become a place for worshiping God, and I will give God a tenth of everything He gives me. Now, he's clearly moved by something. This young guy is really trying hard, but that is not going to go down in the hall of fame of great vows, is it? I mean, that's pretty weak. This is a young man's vow, revealing a young man's faith journey where he's so impressed by God but fails to see God Himself. I'm convinced this happens in so many marriages where so many other voices are calling you forward. You're engaged in so many other pursuits, the pursuit of a family, of children, of career, of building the perfect dream home. And all these things call out to you and you walk next to each other. But it isn't until you're old and gray that you actually look at each other and you say, my God, how I've loved you. What value was sitting next to me all this time and I spent 30 years looking past you. You were a silhouette companion to me, and I never beheld what a gift I'd been given in this mate of my youth. Why is it that so often it's only when we're so old and it's so late in the game that we open our eyes to see the true value of every good thing which God has poured into our lives? I really believe that what God is doing in these final chapters of Jacob's life is giving him a new way of looking at it. Bethel means literally in Hebrew, the house of God. But El Bethel means the God of the house of God. Do you see that subtle difference? How profoundly important it is for us 
to realize that as Jacob renames this place, what he's testifying is, I'm no longer content with empty forms and words, with just a taste of this religion. I don't want the forms and, and the practices. I want the God behind them. I'm no longer happy just being a faithful religious man. I want this God. I want to see Him. I want to know Him. I want to be loved by Him and to love Him. The last thing I need is another set of rules and more places I have to give my money. And if that's all this is for us, man, no wonder it leaves us so cold. Do you realize that God is giving Jacob such a gift at the end of his life? He's saying, Jacob, you have been walking past me for so long. Look at me right now. I'm your gift. I'm the treasure. I'm the one you've been wanting all along, but you've been grabbing at other things. Finally, as you lay yourself to rest, have me and be happy and be filled. Let me give you a last movement I see happening in Jacob's life. I better be careful. This is going to be a message of Pizorian brevity. Here we go. <laughs> Let's go. You guys, look at the time. I can't believe it. I see this movement from striving with men to striving with God. You know, all his life, Jacob had been embroiled in conflict. He was born the second of twins. And even from his birth, you remember the story? He was born grabbing his brother's heel like, Angel, you're not going to beat me out that door. And he was a close second. I mean, he was born literally minutes behind his brother. Think about that. From the day he was born, he was struggling with everyone else on the earth. And maybe some of you, you feel like your life has been exactly that same story. You never get an easy break. No one ever gives you what you try to give them. Never quid pro quo. No, no reciprocation of love, of investment, of commitment. You feel like all your life you had to fight for everything you got, everything that was given to you. And you wonder, why does it seem so easy for others when my life has been a non-stop competition with the rest of the human race from the moment I drew my first breath? That's probably an exaggeration, but it probably re accurately reflects how you feel in your heart, doesn't it? That's Jacob's story. All his life, struggling with everyone. His life was framed by competition and wrestling with the rest of the human race. Do you realize his very name, Jacob, means cheater or deceiver. What kind of name is that to give a kid? You're going to be called, I cheated. In fact, it's not I cheat, it's he cheats, which is even worse. <laughs> he cheats was his kid's name. What that reveals is that for the rest of his life, he would get everything by hook or by crook, but he would grab it for himself. Nothing would be given to him. He would be a usurper and a deceiver, and he would end up with a lot, but most of it would be ill-gotten. I think Jacob lived all his life with a mountain of insecurity on his back. Think about the fact that you're relegated in that culture. If you're the younger, you are really the younger man. I mean, if you grew up Asian in some families, you know exactly what that is. You could be literally 30 seconds younger than your twin. And it's like, listen to your older brother. Dude, he's like 30 seconds older than me. But that's the way it works in the Eastern cultures. To be older is to sit on, on, as a king of the hill. And can you imagine the frustration for Jacob 
born a close second and relegated to a distant second in importance, in priority, in birthright, in everything that mattered in their culture, he was always going to be second. On top of that, his brother Esau was a hairy man's man. The kind of guy with the full beard, not the kind like me when you try to do mustaches for grip and everyone goes, please shave it quickly. It looks disgusting, you know, the little scraggly hairs. And I'm so jealous of dudes that have like this... Esau was a man's man. It's clear that his tissue sucked up all the nutrients in the womb because Esau comes out huge and swarthy and outdoorsman. And here comes hairless, effeminate Jacob, the mama's boy. Always hiding in mommy's skirt, the favorite of mommy, the one whose specialty is cooking. Mm. Can you imagine the chip on Jacob's shoulder? This feeling that all his life he had to prove something. He had to carve out his place in the world. You know, I'm a short man. We short men, we follow our hero Joe Pesci. May not have physical stature, but ain't no one going to mess with you. You bark loud enough, they'll clear out. We'll find other ways to compensate. And I know exactly what that psychology feels like. We will excel at something because we're born shorthanded, quite literally. I think Jacob had that exact same kind of thing going on. He needed constantly to win this game versus everyone else. At the moment we find him in Genesis 35, Jacob's stuck, man. He's got nowhere to go. He's burned his bridges with Laban. He can't go backwards. That route is closed to him. In fact, earlier on, he built a pillar, a boundary marker, and he and Laban agreed, we won't kill each other as long as you don't cross that line and I don't cross that line. We're good. He can't go backwards. But he's scared to death to go forward because ahead of him lies his brother Esau, who he cheated out of everything. He'd robbed his brother of all that was precious, and he knew that his brother had a massive armed force. He, didn't, he wasn't looking forward to that encounter, but he couldn't stay where he was either because his sons had made great trouble for him in Shechem where they were residing. Remember some of the men of Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah. And so what happened was they had tricked him into being circumcised and then hacked all these men to death while they were sore. And so they had caused a very unwelcome kind of presence in Shechem. Long story, but, but the short end of it is Jacob had nowhere to run. His whole life had been conflict. Behind him was conflict with Laban. In front of him was conflict with his twin brother. And right where he was was conflict with everyone in the land of Canaan. This is what happens to people who cannot get past the fact that life isn't a competition against the rest of the human race. Some people are so hardwired to think that way that when you look, they look at you and they look at me, all they see is one more person they've got to beat somehow to the prizes of life. And it's not that they're wicked. Somehow the, the way the chips fell for them, life drove them many times to this kind of thinking. Nothing came easy. And you could be an old man, but if you live your whole life competing with the world, trying to win some game that no one's even playing with you, you'll be a bitter person with no place to go because everywhere you turn, there are the signs of the conflicts that you've made the defining factor of your life. And so there he is stuck. Old, tired, doesn't want to run, but he's got to, but he's got no place to run. And God visits him in Genesis 35 and says, My son, go to the place where you first felt safe. Go back to Bethel. I will make space for you there. And then I will eventually give you this whole land. And so he goes. But he never quite shakes 
that sense that something's off, he's still got to outrun everybody. Maybe some of you are like that. You see life as a competition. I'm convinced that midlife crisis is often generated by this very thing. That you see the people around you who are your age and you compare yourself and you go, dang it, I'm losing, I'm slipping, I got to do something because look what they've done. I mean, let me give you a story. Last night, a good number of us went to a, an event where we got to meet Yul Kwan, this dude. Seriously. Just makes me mad looking at that picture. I want so badly to dislike this man. But I find myself really liking him. He's a great guy. I want to tick off a few things here that ticked me off. He's the survivor winner of 2006 Cook Islands. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Stanford with a degree in theoretical computer science. Then he went out to Yale Law School. And he's a CNN special correspondent. There's a lot of white space left. An FBI Academy lecturer. He worked at McKinsey and Google. You work at one of those, you're done. He worked at both of them. He was listed in People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive 2006. I couldn't even get listed on Harvest Sexiest Men Alive. It's, look at that. He's a legislative aide to Senator Lieberman. He's an officer candidate in the U.S. Marine Corps. I'm like, dude, slow down. And you're lapping us now. Let us catch up a little bit. He's a millionaire. He's got abs of steel. His birthday is on Valentine's Day. Come on! And guess whose number one fan is? And that's just messed up. Look, I, I don't think she was that happy in our wedding photos. Now listen, I gotta get rid of that picture, it's distracting me. Let me just show it to you one more time. Check that out. I'm supposed to hate that guy. And if I follow the rules of life, no one will spark a midlife crisis better than that guy right there. You compare yourself to someone like him, and he's 34 years old. And you start to feel like, have I been playing with Play-Doh and eating paste all my life? What am I doing? What am I doing? You know? And if we follow the rules that Jacob followed, if we think that all of life is about leaving your mark, peeing on every tree trunk, claiming it as your own, being impressive, rising in stature above your fellow man, getting your piece of the pie. If you think that's what life is about, if you've allowed your life to be defined by this ongoing competition with others, this shadow boxing against this image that you're chasing all your life about what you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to accomplish. If you look at the impressive resume of a guy like Yul Kwan and the only thing you can feel is bitterness and envy, something fundamentally is broken in you and you will walk into your twilight years a bitter, repressive, angry little person. Your heart will shrink by the day because every time you look around there will always be someone taller and thinner and richer and smarter and more successful and fruitful than you. If all you can see is the competition when you look at your brothers and sisters, there's no way you're going to slide into your twilight years whole and at peace you will face a crisis of biblical proportions in midlife. Because you will choose to look around you and the way that you will take measure of your life is by finding the next nearest competition and wondering how you measure up. This is Jacob's whole story. 
And it's only at the age of 120, as he nears the twilight of his life, that God gives him this amazing gift of grace. He says, Jacob, wake up, son. Your whole life has been a wrestling match against the wrong people. Do you remember when you were a younger man and you wrestled with me at Peniel? Do you remember that? That was the picture of your real life. This whole time you have not been wrestling with others. You have been wrestling with me. I am the defining adversary and the defining measuring stick. I am the main relationship that you needed to square away in your life. Short of this central relationship, everything else is a fruitless waste of your life. You will win battles that no one cares about and you will enter your old age a fake winner. A hero of a game that everyone else checked out of or realized wasn't even important at all. I don't want any of us to end our lives on those terms. But some of you are definitely going to. Because even now, it's hard for you to release that grip on the idea that everyone around you is someone you got to beat or outshine. And you see the success of others and all you feel is envy and dark bitterness. You see this a lot in girls. You know how we were talking at our table last night at this gathering, but how do you know when a girl tells you another girl is pretty if you could trust them? You know, you're, you're single, you're getting set up by another girl. Oh, she's so cute. Yeah, whatever. When a girl calls another girl cute, you're not so sure. But when the girl goes, oh, we hate her, then you know she's hot. Because this is human nature. When you're truly measuring lower than someone else, it's envy that's the most common response, isn't it? It's bitterness, spite. Is that really how you want to close out your life? Because I promise you the crisis is coming when you're around the bend of midlife. God gives him a new name to symbolize this movement. You once were called deceiver because your life was defined by wrestling with others. But I give you a new name, it's Israel. And that literally means he strived or wrestled with God. It wasn't the first time he was hearing that name. He'd heard it earlier when he was a little younger, but he's hearing it again because now it's clear that the defining relationship of his life has always been the one he had with God and never the one he was trying to win everybody else you want to go into your twilight years at peace with yourself you'll never do it competing with the world you need to know that this God of yours demands the central focus he is to be the defining relationship and the defining wrestling match of your whole earthly life and what's amazing is I can look at a guy like Yul Kwan and let him hug my wife that was a little bit of a longer hug than I, I normally see. I'm not sure what's happening. Um, let her sit there and talk to him, take pictures, and I didn't feel threatened at all. In fact, I was the one shooting the pictures. And you know why I was able to do that? It has nothing to do with my being secure because I'm not that secure. It had nothing to do with Yule being such a nice guy, even though he was a really nice guy. But it's because as I round this bend of midlife, God has given me the gift of Jacob. I'm starting to wake up to this. That when I look at a guy like him, he's just my brother. He's another person who God loves. I don't have to beat him. I don't have to lose to him. I just have to love him. And the only way I could say that with any integrity is because the most important relationship in my life is starting to settle. 
it's really becoming the most important relationship in my life. And I stand here as your pastor saying, I couldn't always say that. Even in my years behind this pulpit, I don't know that I could tell you with honesty that God was always the central and most important relationship in my life. Something strange happens to a person when they turn 40. I hope it happens to most of you. But life is viewed from a different lens. And I'm awakening to things that I was so blind to when I was a younger man. And I now see that it was always God. He was the most defining thing going on in my life. He was the story. Now that I've made my peace with that, you guys can kick my butt in everything, and I'm okay with that. I might trash talk you a little in sports, but that's just to add a little special sauce. You can beat me, and I can sleep like a baby at night. I'm okay with it. I hope all of you beat me by every earthly measure except one. I want to know God. I want to love him. I want him to be the defining relationship of my life. That's how I want to say goodbye to the world. That's how I want to shut out, close my eyes, and breathe my last. I hope that's your testimony too. I hope that that's the way you will draw your own life to a close. Let me finish this by saying, I've watched a lot of friends enter midlife. What's fascinating to me is, you would think the people who keep their bets open, who spread out the odds, who bet on six or seven horses at the same time, might face these last years with more confidence, more security. Because any way you look at it, they're probably going to win somewhere. But what I find so interesting is the ones who hedged their bets and played it safe, never went all in with God, are the ones most plagued with doubt and second guesses as they enter midlife. Because they've never tasted the joy of clear focus. They've never known the thrill of letting it all ride on one hand and knowing that this will either make or break them. The heart quickens. They've played it safe all their lives and now in midlife, they don't feel safe at all. And I find that so interesting. And I hope as I share that with you, it, it's a clarion call to you. There's no way you're going to enter midlife safely. Life is a dangerous proposition. It's not supposed to be safe. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be smooth. But you're supposed to feel it. It's supposed to get your attention. And I hope the movements you see in Jacob's life will echo in your own life. I hope that God will move you from just having God be important to him being all important in your life. Take those idols that you find and bury them somewhere. Move on. Past empty forms to the full deal, all in. I hope you'll see him take you away from fascination with the coolness of life, with the things of God and the things God gives, that you will develop an appetite for God himself, the one who stands behind every good thing. And I also hope that somehow in your twilight years, you will let go of this wrestling match you've been having with the world. This need to feel important, like a winner, like you've got the respect of your fellow man and realize that the only thing you ever really needed all along was to wrestle with God and have that relationship settled once and for all. And the man or woman who has peace with God can finally have peace living this world with whatever God gave them. If you don't find that peace, you will die restless and you will die filled with doubt. 
John Piper once said that a pastor's job is to help his flock die well. I hope in some manner I've helped to do that this morning. I hope that you are thinking a little bit about the end before you get there. That somehow it will spare you many wasted years and give you a much needed course correction before you hit that middle of the road. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.